Welcome to episode two of F**k, I'm Pregnant, a TDX Media production. First and foremost, I'd like to extend a heaping cup of sweet gratitude to everyone who listened to episode one. And I'd like to double that cup of sweet gratitude for the people who actually shared episode one on their various social media pages. Um, Episode one dropped on April 27th, which feels like ages ago. But my reason for taking so long is because I've been working so hard at putting this together, doing a lot of research and a lot of writing. My goal is to have this show syndicated on NPR one day. So instead of inundating my audience with surface level fluff, I'm aiming to produce a quality show that is informative, solution-oriented, comically relieving, and to to some degree, validating, since a lot of pregnant women may experience internal struggles that they're too afraid to share. This episode is no different. So in my mission to create some NPR-level content, I always look for criticism that will make my show more effective in its reach. So when I asked a listener, how could I make it better, the only feedback I received touched on making the podcast more personal. In other words, I should talk more about my own pregnancy journey. So here are some exclusive unpregnant updates about yours truly. Right now... I'm pretty much feeling pregnancy bliss. I've got insurance. I finally, at 22 and a half weeks, went to my first appointment. My being pregnant is no longer a secret. Um, I kind of held it from my family for a while because I wasn't sure about what they would think. But at the end of the day, it didn't really matter. Um, And that's what I just had to wrap my head around. There was never going to be a right time to share it. It wasn't planned, and but it is what it is. We're carrying through. And uh, so luckily, everybody it, around me is on board, and I'm feeling really, really great about things. Um, since my appointment at 22 and a half weeks, I have gone on two more appointments. Um, I found out the sex of the baby. It's going to be a boy. (laughs) And um, and, uh, also uh, when I went in for my last appointment, um, the baby was healthy. I'm healthy. The only thing they said was, you are on track to uh, gain the appropriate amount of weight for your pregnancy, but um, just slow it down a bit, you know, just stay away from simple carbs. When my midwife was saying that, I was thinking about the night that I ate a whole 12-inch Domino's cheeseless pizza to myself in the name of eating for two. <laughs> um, but yeah, Everything is going really well, and I am really excited. I do have a great support system, but um, I also do know that I am lucky for that. A lot of people are birthing and carrying alone. And quite frankly, to be really, really honest with y'all, in the beginning, I wasn't blissful. I was actually quite worried. I mean, really worried. There were layers to my worries and fears. At the top, I stressed about my financial situation. 
I was and still live at home. I didn't and still don't have an ample savings. No adult security blankets like a 401k or a health savings account or an individual retirement plan. I, I mean, I just secured medical insurance for myself through the state, a process that I started back in February and didn't get awarded uh, until May. I hadn't accomplished things that I really wanted to, like really carving out my new path towards laying a foundation for a career in theater like I had planned, or the fact that I never used my passport in the past three years that I had it, and there were certain things that I just wanted to have in place before having a baby, but now that's changed. I'm having a baby before arranging those certain things in place. On a bluer note, I thought about my relationships. I know I'm grown, but what will my parents say? What if my friends grow distant, eventually out of sight? And my biggest fear, what if this breaks my relationship with my boyfriend, the future father of my child? And at the lowest, deepest level, darkest level, like the bottom of the ocean floor where sunshine doesn't penetrate, something I'd been locking away began to ping inside me like never before. I've been trying to function and navigate this world while trying to suppress my mental, spiritual, emotional baggage. My anxiety and depression that I'd been suppressing since I was a kid still haunted me. I worried about my pregnancy being the trigger that allows me to be consumed by it, by my depression and de anxiety. What if I can't properly bond with my baby? What if I have thoughts of hurting myself and actually do? And my most haunting fear was, what if I pass this on to my angel? <laughs> After scouring the internet for answers, I realized that I'm not alone. Antipartum depression or depression during pregnancy is more common than we realize. But before we delve into the realities of antipartum depression, let's first define depression. Symptoms of depression and anxiety, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, are persistent, sad, anxious, or empty mood, feelings of helplessness or pessimism, feelings of guilt, worthlessness, hopelessness, loss of interest, pleasure in activities you love, decreased energy, fatigue, difficulty concentrating, remembering, or making decisions, insomnia or oversleeping, or waking up way early in the morning, low appetite or, and weight loss, or overeating and weight gain, thoughts of death, suicide, suicide attempts, restlessness, irritability, and physical symptoms that do not respond to treatment like headaches, digestive disorders, and unexplainable pain. I meet almost all of those symptomatic requirements, except for actual suicide attempt and weight loss or loss of appetite, because I really don't think anything can get in the way of me and my love for food. <laughs> But all jokes aside, like I said earlier, I'm not alone. Major depressive disorder and persistent depressive disorder, MDD and PDD respectively, affect more than 19.4 million Americans combined, including children, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. 
They cite the National Institute of Mental Health for their stats on PDD and say that MDD is found to be more common in women. The publishing division of Harvard Med School reports that women are two times as likely than men to develop major depression. And women who become pregnant are not exempt. Pregnancy doesn't eradicate depression despite expectations of baby bliss. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists report that 14 to 23% of women experience antepartum depression. And on everydayhealth.com, it reads that antepartum depression can cause complications with pregnancy and or delivery, delivering a baby with low birth weight, or prematurely giving birth. Oof. I've been sharing a lot of bleak facts and statistics on antepartum depression. Here are the most common clinical treatment strategies. Counseling and group therapy, support groups, and as a very, 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 very last resort, brain stimulation therapy, where low levels of electrical currents are passed through the brain. But that is a very, very, very last resort because the electrical currents can cause premature birth. Now, with a plethora of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, or what we commonly know as antidepressants, one might be wondering, why don't any of those work for pregnant women? I mean, that seems like the most logical and simplest choice. Well, it's not that simple. Women experiencing antepartum depression face a totally different set of choices and risks. For women experiencing antepartum, they have to make a serious decision. They either A, have to keep taking the medication but possibly expose their baby to really, really dangerous ingredients and chemicals that could affect them possibly fatally, or B, run the risk of stopping the medication that would ultimately trigger the depression, which could be fatal for the mother and the child. In an honest and gripping fashion, Andrew Solomon, writer, activist, and someone who focuses on LGBTQ rights as well as mental health, transcribes the accounts of two women in his New York Times essay, The Secret Sadness of Pregnancy, who are battling the deadly frost of depression and are faced to make a decision no one in motherhood dreams of making to stop taking SSRIs or antidepressants to protect the baby, but open oneself to the possibility of a fatal relapse or continue taking medication, but expose your baby to uncalculated or unknown health risks, including run defects and stunted neurological development. Their stories spell out the grave effects depression can have on one's mind. Despite what people may say about those who carry the burden of mental and behavioral illness, these women weren't weak. They were willing to take on their depression and were determined to protect their babies. But depression insidiously clung to the backs of these expectant mothers. One of them survived, another did not. Their stories shouldn't just highlight their struggles in one's mind. It should beg for questions and answers concerning what big pharma, leading obstetricians, psychiatrists, and psychologists are doing about this. I encourage you to read their stories. Check out the link in the info box for Solomon's expose. But being a white woman in America with access to premium insurance packages through their jobs, higher education, therapy, medication, and a healthy support systems, 
did not do enough to make their pregnancy foolproof from depression. So it made me wonder, what the heck do women whose lives didn't and don't look like theirs in Andrew Solomon's essay look like? How is their depression expressed? Can they even express it in a way where it can be pinpointed and properly assessed? Take a listen to my July 3rd interview with Philly-based licensed behavior specialist and doula and activist, Irisha Picot-Wagner, as we discuss the ways in which poverty, lack of access, and environmentally induced stress can shape Black depression and motherhood. So here today I have with me my guest, Arisha Picot-Wagner. Arisha, would you like to tell the people who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on your podcast. Thanks for coming. Super excited to be here. Um, my name is Arisha. Um, I am a Philly transplant. It's funny. I was just talking to someone about how uh, August with me, like 11 years I've been here. And like so much has happened in those 11 years that I've been um, in Philadelphia. But I am a birth doula, which is probably why you have me here. <laughs> so I'm a full spectrum doula, but more active on the birth doula side. I've been at 30 births of uh, women who've actually brought babies into this world. Uh, and I curr- I'm currently a licensed behavior specialist. And I've done a lot of work in psychotherapy and outpatient therapy as well. I I thought your background was actually really interesting because you have the doula side where you you know the the clinical the 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 technical and all that is removed and you're just one-on-one woman to woman and um I love that you have both sides you know you have the clinical side where you know you're going by the textbook and assessing people and all that stuff but at the same time it's balanced out with that one-on-one one-on-one tenderness I feel like that a doula brings to the table I always say that doula work is women's work um and it is that emotional work people always ask what's the difference between a doula and a midwife I always say that like midwives work with the mother from the waist down and doulas work with the mother from like the waist up mm-hmm. in terms of we do all their work whether it's you know wiping tears holding hands doing back compressions hip compressions mm-hmm. taking a walk making the mother laugh whatever makes that mother comfortable in that setting of her like bringing life into this world, into this world. can you give us like a sp- <clears throat> Uh, specific accounts of I mean without dropping names and all that mm-hmm. but I remember the last conversation we had you told us that you first started doing work um, as a hand holder for women mm-hmm. who were actually going through abortions can you talk about that a little bit sure um, I had already been doing a lot of community activist work uh, mostly around um, prison abolitionist work inside police brutality work and I met um another sister named Kim who was who was a doula she was a doula and she would tell me like about all of this um work she was doing including being a hand holder um which is like full spectrum abortion doula work with Planned Parenthood and I was like I could do that because like my whole scope is like helping and supporting people especially women and so um I got trained with Planned Parenthood and also later um with the doula project in New York who trains you in a more like um, intensive training around um, full spectrum doula work. 
and um, every, like one or two Saturdays a month, I would go down um, to Planned Parenthood, and <clears throat> it would be interesting because you had to walk through like the crowd of women who were there for the procedure, and we only and I only did um, like the first trimester abortions, but like um, the women would come in and or they would already be in the room when we would come in. Um, and I would just like talk to them. Like I told you last time, I always would make them laugh, um, because they had to fast from midnight the previous, um, like the previous day or that morning. So I always be like, what are you going to eat later? And that will always kind of make them laugh or kind of break that ice because here you are having a very like heavy, serious thing, um, traumatic thing happening. And here's a stranger coming in. Like, I'm here to support you, and you probably don't even feel like you deserve to be supported in that moment, because I would have a lot of, excuse me, I would have a lot of women say, um, or ask me, do you think God loves me? And I would say, well, you know, the God I know is a loving God. That God is going to love you no, no matter what. So doing that procedure, um, <clears throat> the, the procedure is really quick when you um, have an abortion for the first trimester. Um, so I would sit there on the side of the bed and hold their hand and wipe tears and kind of tell them, you know, it's going to be okay. And once the procedure was over, um, I would help them into their clothes and they would go into the recovery room and I would sit and talk to them just about like how they were feeling, things like that and stuff they can do to follow up. And I guess that's sort of where your clinical side kicks in. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because... I was just getting into like that clinical work um, when I was a handholder, mm -hmm. so maybe that was kind of some of the first like, you know, seeds being planted that I wanted to have more of um, working with women more so like one on one, emotionally and mentally, yeah, yeah. And from there is that how that's how the birth work came about because I a lot of those mothers who was having the procedure done the woman who, who was having the procedure done, they were um, mothers. They already had children. And I thought, you know, if I could support them having this procedure, how dope it would be to support them bringing forth life into this world as well. So um, in your doula work and your clinical work, what uh, populations of people are you normally working with? What's the demographic mainly? Mm -hmm. I knew... I knew definitely when I wanted to do, like, birth doula work, I knew I wanted to work with women who look like me, um, which are black women, um, and also women who came from, like, a low income, um, like, around the poverty line or in urban areas. Um, in Philadelphia, because what I learned is that a lot of those women birth alone. <clears throat> and any woman who's been through birth, or if you've been at a birth, or you've seen one on the TV or whatever, you know that that is a painful, can be traumatic experience. So just to be able to have to have gone through that by yourself, I knew that was the population. And mostly that's been the population that I've worked with. And that's not just for your doula work, that's for your clinical work as well. Well, clinical work, mostly too. I mean, of course we have men in the the population um but especially when I did a uh, psychotherapy outpatient therapy it was mostly women it was mostly mothers um with some men as well so these mothers um 
when as you're doing your clinical work and your doula work, um, what what kind of you know access to uh, mental health care are are they taking advantage of if they even have it? Right, right. That's a that's a good question because when I did do um, the outpatient therapy work, it was at a place that only took Medicare and Medicaid, mm-hmm. which is you know state insurance, and you kind of get what you get. Like you mean you. I think last time I talked to you, even just like stepping in in that facility that I worked in, it was not a welcoming facility. Like if you really didn't want these services, you probably would be like, oh, it's time to go because um, you had a lot of people um, in the waiting room who had had, uh, co-occurring disorders. So you might have had someone who had bipolar depression, but they also were on drugs. Um, as well so if you're like a depressed mother who are looking for services and you see a lot of people who are also there who are like um, recovering from drugs or are currently on drugs as well it could probably be off-putting but um, that's the kind of state afforded like insurance that you can have that's the that's the type of treatment that they afford you with state insurance but I also knew like um doing doula work in my prenatals that I think a lot of women, I don't even know if they even knew I was, I was um, also doing therapy work, uh, therapeutic work, but a lot of them would like kind of release a lot. And maybe it's because of the questions I asked like about their background, but they would release a lot and tell me a lot about the traumas they've had um, previously. And a lot of those women had never been to therapy. So it was kind of like, it's, impactful to see that like they're going to give birth and they still haven't like really undone um, their baggage undone their baggage yeah really so are uh, a lot of the mothers that you worked with w- were they taking medication are you know how some how would. is medication viewed some would uh, for themselves and their child uh, just, for, just themselves. for themselves yeah i think it depended on what setting that i met them in if it was when I was doing outpatient therapy with them and they sought treatment, I think medication was fine because they, they sought it out for themselves. <clears throat> but if, like, I work with them in, like, a family therapy setting, and what I usually found is they would be like, my child is, my child needs help, but when you saw that, like, he wasn't or she wasn't the only one that needed treatment yeah. and the mother would and you would kind of recommend more, like, intensive treatment, yeah. that would kind of be, like, a backup, like... Yeah. I'm okay, but my child, like, treat my child. So I think not only resistance to medication, but just resistance for them to have therapy as well. Now, you know, because we were, you know, this podcast is talking all about depression and medication, and, you know, uh, should should you take it to save yourself but possibly harm the child, or should you not take it but possibly relapse, and then you end up harming the child. So, um, you know, and for the... uh, women that Andrew Solomon profiles in his um, New York Times article, The Secret Sadness of Pregnancy with Depression, mm-hmm. most of these women, um, like I was saying, are were affluent. Um, they had really well-paying jobs with great benefits that afforded them all th- kinds of fancy therapy options, and they had a support system. One woman talked, one um, account talked about how the woman would go on walks with her mother and talk about her depression and but unfortunately she still ended up committing suicide um while she was pregnant um 
she opted to get off the medication but you know because she wasn't sure about the effects but it was too late they put her back on the medication but it was too late it the depression had consumed her um so in the in in those demographic settings medication is not necessarily viewed as a bad thing um unless of course it's going to harm the child but medication is accepted so for uh black women though we tend to sort of we got our own way of like dealing right Right. i think yeah i I'm trying to think. I think none of my doula clients I've ever known for any of them to be on medication, um, unless they just didn't like detail that to me. Um, because we are self-medicating oh, through yeah, our addiction. Everything, like yeah, right. But it's not the, it's not healthy for us. But I I have met like more on the clinical side mothers who were on medication Mm -hmm. but I feel like like I said those were the mothers who wanted to seek out treatment Mm -hmm. for themselves so they they kind of knew like okay I I have a problem but what is the percentage of those women in comparison to the women who are like I don't have a problem but my child does oh that's hard to say because I feel like I spent less time with the women who want wanted to seek treatment whereas I have more time and years with working in a family therapy set where it's mom is okay yeah i'm okay. not okay but yeah but mom's okay yeah, y'all can just work with my child right <laughs> right i'm going upstairs even though this is a family and i've i've had that wow yeah because uh, um, we used to do like a lot of mobile therapy like in the home and be like all right miss harisha here but like clearly there's like problems and breakdowns in the home problems breakdowns mental health issues with you that it was just a it was a lot harder to get them to see that like they needed something as well. Because yeah. the problem will continue to persist. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not it's just the whole, the whole yeah, yeah, the whole environment. Everybody yeah. involved in this person's life needs to check in and see what's going on with themselves because then it ultimately affects the child. But right. you gotta like, you gotta like start at the top and then comes like, you know, like trickling down. Oh, so they so they're carrying this baggage, this depression and and anxiety and things like that, um, due to their trauma. But I, I feel like for Black women, we don't have time to be sad. We don't have time to uh, ruminate thought. Yeah, therapy or think about how we're going to end our you know our days here. Yeah. So. Yeah. How is our depression through your clinical and doula right. experience? How do you feel like? How do you see um, our depression normally expressed? Yeah. How do you feel like our depression normally I think a lot of times, and this even from like being a daughter of someone who had who uh, grew up with a mother who was depressed, and just like looking around in our communities, I think a lot of times women who are depressed or are going through different types of like anxiety or bipolar and they're not seeking treatment. I think a lot of that shows in sometimes the harsh parenting of children. I tend to always think people want to do good. A lot of people want to do good by their children. But sometimes when like all of that work becomes stressful, I think a lot of times it is it does stand in the way of parenting effectively. And I and I think especially like thinking about my own mother, I think they they feel they're doing the best 
they the best way they can with what they have and they really don't know about the residue that comes like later with some of the things they do as parents and, but I think this also shows up in um the way that um our health like you know whether it's partaking in like drugs or alcohol or overeating or sex or whatever you see a lot of times that becomes like some type of of addiction that is there so I think it shows us in a lot of different ways yeah um you're making me think about this article I just read in the Atlantic um I think it's just been this past issue they profiled a young girl growing up in the streets of Baltimore um she uh got pregnant at 12 or 13 um, lost the baby, um, and then so on top of that, living in the slums, her dad was in in and out of jail, um, s- seeing drug addiction in her family and, and all around her, violence as well. She said she recounts like um, seeing like a, I think it was a family member or a friend at like eight years old, like dead, you know, wow. um, from from gun violence, you know. So all this built up. Mm-hmm trauma um and and that um, of course is just like embedded stress that you're internalizing and that i'm sure leads to things so she said um that the baby having the baby she felt like would be make her happy um but then she exactly and then she lost the baby and so in turn she turned to eating and drinking heavily she became addicted to food and alcohol And um, her road to recovery. I I hope you guys got to read this story. Um, it's it's amazing, and I really hope she's doing okay. Um, but uh, I, you're you're you know what you're saying is making me think about filling that. in those gaps mm-hmm. that we have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's even I mean I don't know we'll probably end up talking about this, but just thinking about like if some communities some people don't even know where to begin to seek their treatment or like a community I grew up in Franklin, Virginia, like church is like the only thing that's being offered. Pray it away. Right, pray it away. <laughs> tell, you know, you're standing up. I remember going to church and people st- will stand up and give these like traumatic testimonies, right? You know, I was prostituted at 14 and, you know, and then it's like you unpack it and then what? You know, you unpack it, you're left vulnerable, but like then what? It has to be like something else. Leave it to on help the, you in yeah. the process of healing. Right. Leave it on the altar. Yeah, leave it on the altar. That's <laughs> what you said. Leave it on the altar. <laughs> right. But down. you know, uh, the altar is not gonna give you I mean, look, divinity having those beliefs, that keeps you going for sure. Yeah. But it does not hurt to help you to have someone like you coming in they're like let's bounce these yeah let's talk about it let's process it let's self-investigate right let's release in without any judgment because i feel like even in the church you're releasing but you i'm pretty sure people like did you hear what danielle said at church today right she was drinking at 15 and hanging out in the streets so there's still like a testimony turns into gossip exactly (laughs) it's the gospel yeah, it's the gospel. So, um, so we're talking about how uh, depression shows up for black women mostly through stress. It inhibits mm-hmm. black women from being able to properly uh, bond with their mm-hmm. children. They're um, sort of using these harsh tactics mm-hmm. of 
raising their children or instilling obedience or things mm. like that, or possibly even turn it to drug addiction. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, when they are seeking help or trying to take, take advantage of um, state-provided mm. services, it's not, not <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and it's not welcoming. You're not, mm-hmm. it's not a, a place that uh, instills dignity in, right. in someone. You feel good. You want to feel good about going. Right. <clears throat> and you want to feel good that, like, the person that you are sitting across to telling probably things you've never told anyone else mm-hmm. is going to have a level of understanding there. Um, I can imagine going to therapy and then the person, the only thing they can do is just empathize and give me some head nods when you're actually like, I just want to understand what it means, you know, to have been a latchkey kid since you were like eight because your mom had to work so much and leave you home alone and leave you vulnerable like to the streets and things like that. Yeah. Um, so what, I guess we kind of already talked about this, but um, just so that we're, you know, really making sure that we are. So what are the factors that keep black women or keep us from committing suicide? Um, You know, we talked about really not having the time. Can you just expand Mm -hmm. on that? I think there's several factors that keep us from um, committing suicide. I think we know, especially like in black communities, women are usually the keepers of the children. And I think if you know of like you you commit suicide and you you remove yourself and your family, who are gonna take care of your children? Like I think there's still this thing of like my children are gonna be alone, responsibility. But I also think black women and we've been saying this for like years now that we really have embedded this strong women can't break us drop the trash on us and we go rise out of like a superwoman through it that I think some black women just think this is our plight. This is like my mom had a struggle and and she did it. And my grandma had the struggle and she did it. My aunties, this is just like my my time. Like, right. right. So we've developed a high threshold of trauma and stress. Yes. Okay. I think this, I think, I think we just think, think this is what it's supposed to be. Yeah. But it's killing us. It's literally killing us. There have been studies that have shown, you know, the neighborhoods that we live in, um, the, the high intense stress that we experience and undergo, it actually um, takes on physical, uh, the physical toll on us. Yeah. Another thing, going back to this article that I read, it's not even what's going on outside of your home home it's what's going on inside your home and i'm not talking about you know the interaction between what you may have going on with your family i'm actually talking about structurally your home um in that article that i read a lot of the homes in baltimore which is a similar environment to what we have in philadelphia um you have they had a lead problem so that actually you know takes a toll on your body that literally makes you sick mm-hmm. um but a lot of landlords did not want to do the overhaul and improve the home and and they, they were and they got away with it so you have babies who are absorbing yeah. the lead and the paint and all this stuff and then on top of that um i read that of course when you leave a house 
to be, you know, you're not taking care of a home, it leads to cracks in the walls, which, you know, mice can get through. Well, there is an allergen in mice urine that travels through dust and it triggers asthma. So you have, (laughs) you have high rates of uh, uh, obesity, you have stress, you have asthma triggers that you can't even see and it's due to a fixable problem but nobody cares (laughs) and then gun violence (laughs) doesn't care right and then gun violence and then whatever else is going on in your home and like you said outside the home inside the home yes and then you're trying to bring a baby in the midst of it and you like what you just said most of the time you're alone you're alone one of my um friends uh she was she just trained to be a doula on um, ICTC which is interesting she trained through an initiative to Baltimore mm-hmm. said with the city we want more doulas mm-hmm. of color um <clears throat> in the city to, to help women through the process but she was telling me a story of how her stepsister or half sister comes on the other side had a baby when she was like 18 and lived in the projects and overcrowding the warehouse and no one was there to help her um doing that birthing process and when she came home my friend her sister went over there to like stay a night with her and like the baby cried and they were like do something to shut that fucking baby like no type of love or sympathy understanding because the mom already had other small children and she's like, look what you've done. You brought, like, another child here that's going to stress me. i got to figure out how to take care of. You're only 18. I'm still taking care of you. So just the thing that, like, babies are being born in homes that are, like, already unloving, already, you know, is a high-stress level. Not intentionally, but it's like, damn, now i got another mouth to feed. i got to find diapers, wipes. Um, not intentionally, but... I can imagine whoever is, like, that matriarch in the house that's just more stressed. And babies should have, like, they should come home with, like, a welcoming committee. Like, people, like, you know, the way babies should come home. And it just circles. It's just a cycle. You know, we have this strong black woman mentality. Mm -hmm. We can, you know, uh, rise through anything. But then we, the odds, you know, we're dealing with an insurmountable amount of issues and you know yeah we can survive through it but how are but what at what expense are you really surviving thing you're breathing you're walking but are you living are you living are you living a quality life and that's the difference maker i think so and i think too we just didn't talk about mental health in ways that we talk about now so we might it might look like yeah my mom was the strongest woman ever but we didn't see the ways in which she broke down or you know even some of maybe some strange things were going on in your home that now you can look back it was like oh something was there yeah and then the, I, my next question was going to talk of, about the ways in which trauma sort of, uh, or what kind of trauma normally interrupts mm-hmm. um, our mother's ability to bond and nurture our children. Mm-hmm. But we already talked about <laughs> we that. Talked I about think a that. lot of mothers carry on um, like childhood trauma from their childhood, or even some people call it like generational trauma. Whereas 
if all like like if the the examples of motherhood you may have seen were not as loving or um may have been abusive you probably start to second guess yourself like how could how can i be something different to my child so i think just and i also think systematic trauma is real i think the system does a number to us in ways in which you know you have like the one percent and people who get to be rich and their children can play tennis and go to best of schools but then you have like a large portion of people specifically like disproportionately our people who are just trying to make it day to day and that stuff is real it breaks you down yeah you know, it like I like I was just saying. You know, it's not just what's going on outside of your home in the neighborhood. It's literally what's going on inside the home, the interactions, the love, and down to the st- structural needs of the actual home yeah. as well that take a toll. And then you're bringing a baby in the midst yeah. in the midst of all that. But you know, uh, black women are strong, right? Black women are strong, and black women can do so much. Just and do everything and hold the family down. So important to uh, recognize that we need we need, we need help. She tired. Yeah. She, we need help, and that's another thing too. I think a lot of black women, because we taking on that, well, shit, I'll do it, or you know, I got super strength. That we can't ask for help. You know, you can't ask for help, and and. I was talking to my husband about this, that um, black women tend to rely on other black women when they do need help. And that is all well and fine. But we didn't create these children by ourselves. And you are men in our community. We need, you know, that type. We need to help. Yeah, not to say that there aren't men. Yeah, there are men. But but we do need more men. I actually saw a flyer for... um, a cookout for men against child support. What? And it was taking place in Uptown, in Germantown. Trifling. We should get a cadre of revolutionary (laughs) black feminists and mother. Like, you even got to be black from this scratch that. And we go there without time. Because your baby daddy might be in this cookout. It's time to snatch him. Snatch him out of this damn. Put that burger down. Let's go. So that concludes my interview with Irisha. It was such a pleasure interviewing her. Irisha, wherever you are, thank you. You're such a joy and such a light. I'm so honored uh, that you agreed to do this. Irisha co-edited a book called The Color of Hope, People of Color Mental Health Narratives. It's a collection of accounts from black and brown and yellow folk centered around mental health. Arisha and her co-editor collected writings from people from all walks of life, uh, including mothers uh, and even the writings of men uh, from behind bars. She and her co-editor have been featured on NPR, local PBS station WHYY, and their book has even been used in a graduate course at Drexel. Yes! (laughs) I'll provide a link to the book in the description box below, uh, but you can find it on various websites, including Amazon, Walmart, Walmeezy, Barnes and Noble, and Google Books. Uh, check it out and support. Uh, you can also find Irisha on Instagram at Irisha the Hood Therapist. <laughs> um, she's she's amazing, y'all. Please support her and her work and her activism and everything that she does. Um, a simple hello, cheer her on. Yeah, go do that. Um, 
And uh, this concludes episode two of I'm Pregnant. Wow, I'm so happy about this. I wanted to get this done before the end of the month um, or before August. I can't even believe we're saying that now. And uh, I wanted to have this um, episode be under 30 minutes because sometimes I look at podcast time and I'm like, dang, this is going to be an hour and a half. Like, I ain't got time for that. So <laughs> I wanted it to be 30 minutes. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. I hope that the the show was impactful. I hope that you had time to listen to the whole thing. If you did, thank you so much. Um, and thank, yeah, thank you for listening. If you're going to share, thank you in advance for sharing. This is the part where I'm going to talk about, you know, supporting me you can find me on patreon my oh, patreon, damn, my patreon link name? will be in Hold the on. info box below but you can find me at patreon.com slash tdx media all one word and uh, you could support me there and um if you have other means of supporting me like by just sharing commenting interact with me i'm trying to step my twitter game up so um i will be on there more often talking about things so yeah check me out there on Twitter as well. I'll put all the links in the description box below and, uh, let's chat. I want to know what you want to know more about. Um, what are some things that you've been experiencing? Hit me up. You can email me at the Danielle experiment at gmail.com. Um, email me with your stories. Talk to me about your experience being, uh, a, a mom going through unplanned pregnancy. Um, if you are a currently a mom or if you decided to terminate your pregnancy, um, I want to know about your stories. Um, so yes, thank you. Love y'all and see you next time or <laughs> talk to you soon.